Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week at the G20 meeting in Hamburg, Germany, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin met for over two hours and people were like trying to yank them out of the room and they were like, no, we're still talking. And during that time, Putin said that he didn't interfere in the U.S. election and Trump was like, okay, dude, you're my dude. I believe you did. Did Trump agree with your position that Russia had not intervened in the U.S. elections? Well, um, he, uh, let me repeat, uh, he uh, answered all uh, the questions and uh, I think that he noted it and uh, he agreed with it. Um, but uh, I think it's better to ask him exactly what you have asked rather than me. So this is Putin's version of events, that they denied any Russian interference in the election. And according to Putin, he thinks that Trump believed him, that Russia played no role in it. And just just to clarify that, in an in interview with Reuters last week, Trump doubled, doubled down saying, I said, did you do it? And he said, no, I did not. Absolutely not. I then asked him a second time in a totally different way. He said, absolutely not. A totally different way. <laughs> this is like when a kid is sneaking candy from a candy jar or like a cookie and then he has like crumbs all over his face and you catch this kid in the act and he's like no I didn't have that cookie and then you're like oh yeah okay that's cool I, I'm yeah I believe you yeah except I think you're giving Donald Trump a lot of credit by like casting him as the adult and not the kid it's like an adult is reaching into a candy jar and like has shit all over his face. And then the kid is like, did you do that? And they're like, no, a ghost did it. And the kid is like, oh yeah, ghost. I think we worked out the joke. I think we worked it out. So this week on the podcast, we're talking to Angela Rye, a political contributor at CNN and the host of a new podcast called On One with A. Rye. And what I do with my privilege is ensure that I'm giving people raw, unfiltered truth. But first, our week in weenies. All right, we've got an impressive lineup of weenies. It's particularly evil this week. So our first weenie of the week is Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. On Thursday, DeVos met with survivors of campus sexual assault and their advocates. But immediately following that meeting, she also then met with men's rights activists and those who represent the accused rapists. If you're wondering what the fuck... You're not alone because, yeah, what the fuck? This is a good example of, like, what fair and balanced means to now. this administration. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's the spirit in which they're doing it. But so I interviewed a bunch of the advocates for campus sexual assault survivors, and they are very concerned that this administration is going to dismantle or at least weaken protections provided by Title IX, especially ones under the Obama administration that— made more stringent um, guidelines around how colleges need to respond to sexual assault. This meeting does not bode well for them either because she's meeting with men's rights activists literally right after she's meeting with survivors of sexual assault. But I mean, like, this is how you do, like, a proper investigation. First you, like, interview the assault survivor, then you interview the assaulter. It's like, it's like, That's let's like, give the people who commit sexual assault just like a chance to talk. It's like in the, in the comments of the piece that I wrote, this commenter, Ginny, wrote, when you meet with civil rights re- leaders, you have to meet with the KKK. 
That's I mean, that's true. That's such how a good things point. work, you know? <laughs> Our next weenie is a man who looks like he calls his father Papa. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., as you know, there is, you know, like some back and forth him in the New York Times. The New York Times reports that he met with a Russian lawyer. He's like, no, it's for a Russian adoption program. And then the New York Times is like, actually, is it? And he's like, yes. And then the New York Times obtains these emails that prove it is not a Russian adoption program. And they're about to publish them. And then Donald Trump Jr. is like, nah, I'm going to publish them first. Which is getting ahead of the fake news. I love for him to get ahead of the fake news, which is like, what is he getting ahead of? That's the question. So he releases all these emails in which they say explicitly that like Rob Goldstone, this publicist, has information, damaging information about Hillary Clinton, which would be helpful to the Trump campaign. And it's so sensitive. They're not going to tell Donald Trump himself. They're going to tell his young, like his little lackey son. And then uh, he's like, oh, yes, I love it. I love it, especially later in the summer. Basically, they are so incriminating. And and like, yes, that's weenie-ish to be like, yes, I support Russia's bid to have my father elected. Like, yes, I know election interference is happening and I love it. Quote. Can I just say that it's there is something so hilarious about the fact that he thought he was it was like a good strategic move on his part to dump all these emails onto Twitter by himself. It's like the move that you would expect from the villain in like a kid's movie where there's like the protagonist is like a kid. I'm doing a lot of kid themes today. You're doing a lot. You're like, it's like, <laughs> like if a kid was stupid, like a kid. <laughs> there's really, this is the, that's the only way I can understand the behavior of the people in this administration. It is pretty crazy. And, but the real weenie-ish part that I just want to underscore in this podcast today is how he's like, I don't regret shit. I did that on purpose. You're not going to make me feel like an idiot. And then all of like the Trump campaign greasy men are praising him for being for like total government transparency. That's really incredible. And also there's something very poetic to me that it was Donald Trump Jr., it's like the namesake of Donald Trump. Of course. Donald Trump Jr. also appeared on Hannity on Tuesday night where he acted like, you know, like everything's chill. This was a normal thing to do. He was just supporting his father. Listen, I, I think, it, like I said, in retrospect, I probably would have done things a little differently. Again, this is before the Russia mania. This is before they were building it up in the press. For me, this was opposition research. They had something, you know, maybe concrete evidence to all the stories I'd been hearing about, but they were probably underreported for, you know, years, not just during the campaign. So I think I wanted to hear it out. Here is what this is actually like, this response especially. Another kid thing. You know, when a baby gets hurt, like for the first time, like a, a toddler, like a two-year-old or whatever, like falls over, bump, bunks their head, mm-hmm. and they look at their, they don't know how to react first. So they look at their parent to see what the right reaction is. And so like if the parent looks really worried, they'll get really like freaked out and they'll start crying. But if the parent is like chill, they'll be like, okay, that hurt a little, but I can continue on now. I feel like Trump supporters are looking at like the Trump camp to be like, how do I respond to this information? And if the Trump camp is just like, yes, this was honorable, this is good, we're all in a good mood, then all the supporters are like, okay, I feel fine. I think the basic takeaway here is that the Trump administration and everybody who supports them are actual babies. Yeah, our babies learning how to emote for the first time. 
Okay, so our next and final weenie is Arkansas House Bill 1566, also known as the Tissue Disposal Mandate. This is a really terrible bill on abortion rights um, that basically requires a fetus to be treated the same way that a dead body would be treated and that a woman would have to get the consent from other family members to figure out how to bury it. So this fetus couldn't go on to like serve research purposes and it couldn't just be disposed of with other medical waste. It would actually have to be buried or cremated and family members would get to decide on how that happened. The ACLU is suing and one of their many concerns is that this will give rapists power over what to do with the fetus for sexual assault survivors for fetuses that are aborted because of rape. That's despicable. I love for us to do like, oh, normal Trump assholes, blah, 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 blah. And then just an actual quietly despicable law. And the most despicable thing is that this stuff was happening even before the Trump administration came into power. Oh, yeah. This, this is, is just like, like this is like the latent despicable things that we like haven't had time to think about. Like those guys existed. But let's cleanse our palates with my new hero, Sarah Shamoon. Sorry for mentioning you here. I think you'll be okay with it. She's 18 years old. Jezebel's currently doing something called Teen Week. So we're talking to teens about different things. And Wednesday, I spoke with Sarah Shamoon. She is 18 years old. She's going to Harvard next year. She's been working in New York City politics since she was 14, the summer before her freshman year of high school. She's... I'm sorry. She's the smartest person I've ever met. Joanna's getting really emotional right now. <laughs> I'm just— You can't see it, I was but tears, her eyes are watering. I was very inspired to meet her. She was so passionate about politics, and she really believed in politics. And just listen to some of the interview. You know, when we hear someone who's trying to tear down what we believe in and the fabric of our community and what, you know, the, the characteristics and, and, you know, types of demographics that people in my, you know, friend group totally, like, represent— it's really like a call to action to myself, to my peers, and just so many teens across across the nation is that, you know, we really need to get active and we need to work together to see, you know, and to ensure that the values that we love and we trust so much are protected over the next four to eight years. So just shout out to Sarah, you rule. We don't have to feel so depressed every day because Sarah's growing up and I'm sure there are people like her. Not to place all the pressure of the future onto Sarah, but... I don't mean to do it. I just mean... There are people who are hopeful and really jazzed on politics, and I feel very grateful for them. Me too. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. Cybersecurity declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
Now joining us is Angela Rye, an attorney, CNN political contributor, and CEO of Impact Strategies, a political advocacy firm in DC. She's also the host of a new podcast called On One with A. Rye. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So tell us about the podcast. I've listened to the first episode, which came out this week. And it was amazing. But what makes On One different? What are you going to do with it? Sure. So On One um, is really uh, a title that we worked really hard to figure out. Um, and it's it embodies exactly who I am. I, I say often that I'm On One. My best friends say that I go from zero to a thousand, not zero to a hundred, but zero to a thousand real quick. And I think it represents everything I stand for. I have a lot of passion about topics I care about, whether we're talking about race or politics or culture or just current events. Um, And normally I try to bring that fire to everything I address um, through my opinions, through fact-checking folks. Um, And we do a lot of that on the podcast. Uh, We have uh, something called This Moment in Blackness every week where we're just talking about Black excellence or sometimes funny things. Um, I say often that I'm self-described as Sophista Ratchet, equal parts sophisticated and equal parts ratchet. So this will speak to the souls of those who can relate to that. But the podcast is really designed to make topics that are often very heady and weighty and and, and untouchable, very tangible to the common person. Um, I want people everywhere to feel like this is something they can relate to. And we're talking about issues they care about, regardless of their race or gender, um, and regardless of what part of the world they reside in. So in your first episode, you interviewed Representative Maxine Waters. Can you tell us about any highlights from that interview? So the fact that Congresswoman Waters agreed to do my first podcast was absolutely the highlight. Um, It really, really made not just my day, but like my month. Um, Congresswoman Waters is a mentor to me. She's someone um, who in so many ways I aspire to be just like. Um, I say all the time when you can march in Manolo stilettos, you're doing it. And that is exactly who she is. Um, she is, you know, what the kids would say is bad and bougie at the same damn time. And I love her for it. Um, she's amazing. She's always been amazing. And I'm happy millennials are seeing just how awesome she's been. She's been the boss and you find out why on the podcast. Um, and then I think the awesome thing too, is hearing her talk about something like gangster rap, you know, and how she fought to ensure that young people who are telling their stories through their lens, um, was important to her, and she didn't think that they should be censored. I said, no, censorship is not, you know, what we should be talking about. Mm-hmm. These young people are talking about their lives. They're mm-hmm. talking about, um, you know, what is wrong in their communities. Mm-hmm. They went into their garages and made this music, and they had to market this music all by themselves, mm-hmm. and it's telling a real story. Who's so your I- favorite rapper? Tupac. <laughs> All eyes on me. <laughs> All eyes on me. That's I love right. it. That's right, Tupac. And she says that she sees a resurgence of the women's movement. And that march in Washington in January, mm-hmm. there's over 700,000 yeah. women out there. And we had some black women in the leadership of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're on the verge of a real women's revolution. Wow. And I don't think that Men in power really get it, Mm -hmm. and they really know what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. She talks about the importance of choice, but also talking about the ways in which women protect their bodies and own their bodies in ways that speaks to women of all cultures and and understanding the importance of cultural sensitivity when you're having these conversations. So just like always, 
she's Queen Maxine, and you see her show up in that same light on the podcast. So you talk a little bit about this on the podcast, but you and Representative Waters have both gotten a lot of publicity, I think rightfully for your kind of take no bullshit media strategy. And I want to talk about that and how you approach cable news, because Mm -hmm. right now I think a lot of people feel like it's a bit of a wasteland with people who have no value to bring to the conversation being given this national platform. How do you approach your work on CNN and what do you think the value to gain from these kinds of conversations are? Sure. And and so whether we're talking about CNN or NPR or The Breakfast Club, which in many ways are all very distinct audiences, I see it as, or or TV One, because I also still do um, Roland Martin's show, um, News One Now, quite often. And, And what I would say to you is the most important thing is telling people the truth. I see it as a privilege to be on air Um, In whatever form, Um, I see it as a privilege to be on your podcast with you right now. And what I do with my privilege is ensure that I'm giving people raw, unfiltered truth. That is my job. It's in my name. My name literally means bringer of truth or messenger of God. I think God would sometimes question whether or not I'm doing it in a godly way. But I think the point remains, like, I have an obligation to tell people the truth. And if I'm ever wrong, which sometimes I am, I promptly correct myself because I see it as an obligation to give people the truth. I don't care if it's on cable news or, you know, your regularly scheduled nightly news program. It's so important for us to give people the raw real, um, especially given what's going on right now. There is a lot of BS flying. And this is not a, you know, a sitcom. You know, this is not a drama. This is not supposed to be Scandal or House of Cards um, or How to Get Away with Murder, which sometimes seems like that's where we are. Um, This is about, you know, giving people exactly what they need to hear so they can survive this political crisis and and manage in their everyday lives. So one thing that I personally wonder about with the media coverage, which I think is still trying to, you know, the media is still trying to figure out how to cover a candidate and now president like Donald Trump, um, is how its coverage would be different if women of color were more represented in our powerful institutions. So as heads of these media organizations, more female journalists of color, more commentators of color. Um, is that something that you think about? And is there a reason to believe that anything could be different today if women of color were more visible in these platforms? So I think the answer is an obvious one. Absolutely, it would be different. You think about women who use uh, their platforms in powerful ways like Joy Reid. You know, you think about, again, you talked about Congresswoman Maxine Waters. You think about Kamala Harris and how she's running circles around these fools and Senate hearings. So did you not consult it before you came before this committee, knowing we would ask you questions about well, it? Well, we, we talked about it. The, the policy is did based— Did you ask that it would be shown to you? The policy is based on the principle that the president— Sir, uh, I'm not asking about the principle. I'm asking when you, well, you would be asked the these question. questions and you would rely on that policy, Chairman, did you not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been asked should be allowed to answer the question. You know, it absolutely would be different. Um, and again, going back to what Congresswoman Waters said on the first podcast, the, the women's movement is resurging. And, and women have the opportunity to really demonstrate leadership in such a time as this, as we saw 
with the Women's March. Um, and the Women's March organizers, by the way, are my second episode. Um, you see that we do things differently and we're not playing. We don't have time to play with you. We got to protect kids, you know, and families and have have to protect our, you know, our jobs and ensure that the country's in a good space. I'm not saying it's just families and house and households and food. Like we do, we have, we work real jobs. You know, you think about this particular White House and how much he wants to undo President Obama's legacy. And I said this on the podcast too. Women in the White House are paid 63 cents on the man's dollar. You know, that's Donald Trump's first accomplishment, taking us backwards. Whereas Barack Obama's first accomplishment was signing the Lilly Ledbetter Act into law, which ensures that there is no wage discrimination or at least addresses it head on. It is a crisis, you know, and women are saying enough is enough. You know, we don't have to go backwards. We're not going to go backwards. And if y'all are ready to really fight and resist, you should follow us. So one question that I just have for you is what what do you do when you're going on CNN? You know, you're going to maybe be paired with a Trump surrogate or or somebody who is not going to be easy to have a conversation with. What do you do to prepare for that? Um, again, I think that like the Bible talks about study to show yourself approved. And I think the most important thing for me is having my facts straight. The rest of that, I can deal with it. Thankfully, I grew up in a household where uh, my voice mattered and it was a democracy in terms of opinions. And so I grew up debating my dad. Um, and so I'm not afraid to to say exactly what I think um, as long as it's rooted and grounded in fact. And that is what I try to do. I don't care who I'm up against. It might be a Democrat I disagree with. It might be, you know, the host or the anchor who I, I don't, maybe I don't agree with how they phrase the question or I think a fact is off. I don't mind correcting or challenging anyone on what I believe to be the truth. So Trump obviously picks on a lot of women and a lot of people in general. But in the first few months in office, he specifically went after a couple of really prominent black women, um, reporter April Ryan, Congressman Waters and Susan Rice. Is there a pattern there at all? Or, you know, what do you make of those attacks? Um, So Donald Trump went after women all throughout the campaign, right? He went up against uh, Carly Fiorina, who I don't have, you know, anything positive to say except for I think it's unfortunate that he went after her, right? Like, regardless of her political beliefs, um, she's accomplished and she didn't deserve the attacks. Quote, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Donald Trump saying that and saying more about his Republican rival, Carly Fiorina. The language coming to light this evening in a Rolling Stone piece that went live just moments ago. Uh, He went after Heidi Cruz. He went after women in video when he wasn't running for office. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. This is pattern and practice of someone who has always treated women like property. Um, we've watched him disrespect Melania. I don't have no, no love for Melania, though, uh, because she also came after Barack Obama asking for a birth certificate sounding crazy before this election got started. But I digress. My only point in saying any of this is Donald Trump is very clear that he doesn't have any respect for women. And I would say maybe the only exception to that rule is Ivanka Trump. Um, I've seen him treat her consistently with respect. But yeah, I think he's just demonstrating what he knows to do best, and that is to treat women like property because he's never been challenged or corrected on it. So we've been 
dealing with a lot of things like that, like Donald Trump being horrible to women or Donald Trump Jr. posting his emails on the Internet. There are a lot. I mean, that's like a big national story, but there are just a lot of kind of like dramatic things that we have to deal with every single day and the networks have to react to it. But meanwhile, Republicans are still trying to pass their health care bill. And that hasn't gotten coverage in the past couple of weeks because there have been so many other yeah. more immediate things to deal with. How do you think that we should be keeping the pressure up about that? So I actually do think um, there's been coverage on the the, the health care debacle. Um, what I would point to first is the Republicans are in the exact same position they were in once they uh, took the majority while Barack Obama was in office. We know they tried to repeal Obamacare over 60 times. It was supposed to be a repeal and replace strategy they could never get to replace because they knew in the back of their minds that replacing something that worked and was hard to get to would be impossible. And that's the same space they find themselves in now. Um, over a month ago, Mitch McConnell said, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, said, it's going to be really hard to get to 50 votes on this bill. Well, to make it harder, they put a committee, a special committee of all white men um, together to work on what would be the Senate Republican version of the bill. Not one woman in the room to talk about choice. Not one woman in the room to talk about the important role that organizations and entities like Planned Parenthood play play in our in our everyday lives, um, particularly for those in marginalized communities that can't pr- afford traditional healthcare services. So I think the pressure up should just look like this. There is an absolute hard stop on anything that would put um, pre-existing conditions back on the table. There is an absolute hard stop on anything that would compromise states' access to Medicaid for poor people. There's an absolute hard stop on anything that would take us back to where we were pre-Obamacare. Now, they continue to talk about Obamacare as a disaster, but that is because most states are run by Republicans, an overwhelming majority, and they decided a long time ago to protest progress and keep us behind. So if they would stop protesting progress and actually working to make Obamacare work, we would be way better off. So instead of trying to repeal and replace, they should amend it and don't end it. That is a line from uh, Bill Clinton talking about affirmative action. But that's just it. You don't have to sabotage a system and kill people, quite literally, or make people sicker because you don't like the author of the thing. The author and the architect should not get in the way of what's the right thing to do. time for our weekly segment where we take a minute to discuss the ways we're coping with this relentlessly stressful administration. It's called How to Handle the Dicks, and Angela's still with us. So, Angela, the thing that I have been doing, um, and I talked about this last week on the podcast too, I've been going to this exercise class that only models go to, and and it's just, and I do not look like a model. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so I'm like by far the shortest, like weirdest person in the class. <laughs> you better work, girl. I really am. <laughs> Just like staring at these beautiful bodies. I was really objectifying my classmates. But Okay, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> um, so are you, are you doing anything like that that you want to share? What am I doing? Um, I think I would say I'm probably overspending. And my new thing right now, unfortunately, has been um, Amazon Prime now. Like, it's a real problem. So literally, my uh, my godsons were staying with my parents for about a month. They're also my cousins. And I was ordering stuff on Amazon Prime. I was like, oh, my parents won't have to go get stuff. Let me just order, like, water and, you know, bacon and all this random stuff. And my dad was like... Girl, if you don't stop sending all this shit to the house. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my thing. And my new thing has been messing with technology, figuring out how to make purchases more efficient, but probably spending too much money along the way. Some You got to cope some way. Self-care. Hashtag self-care. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon Prime is messed up. You can order like a refrigerator and it'll come to you. That facts. Prachi, what, what are you doing? Um, well, I have actually been cooking a lot this Great. week. Oh. And by a lot, I just mean I cooked... Once. <laughs> Once, but it has lasted me through the whole week. And it's wow. and I've been cooking Indian food, which is the food that I grew up with. And I, it's my favorite kind of food. And it's like, it's my comfort food. But I didn't really know how to cook anything before. So I learned a few weeks ago. And now I've been cooking. And it's been great. And I've been saving money. I'm dying to know what you're making, though, because I love Indian food. Okay, well, the things that I've been making are extremely basic. And I'm almost a little embarrassed to say them. I'm but making rice. <laughs> yeah, you made like rice. a pot of rice. I made a pot of rice. <laughs> Are you for real? No, no, no. So oh. I made this thing called kitchen which is like, it's like Indian comfort food. It's just, it's like, mm-hmm. like lentils and, and mm. rice. But it's, I don't know how else to describe it. It's very, it's just like Indian comfort food. I love it. I eat lentils, like I eat them a lot. <laughs> Guys, I'm so I'm so proud of all of us. <laughs> We're doing great. Angela, thank you so much for thank joining us. Thank you all so much. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you to our guest, Angela Rye. This show is produced by Levi Sharp and Gabriella Sierra, with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show, and you can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. <laughs>